when I talk about government gaming from an embarrassment of riches, right? I, I grew up in a, a huge facility with lots of space, lots of computer support, lots of money, lots of people. So I tend to build big. Uh, uh, the war college tends to be what we call the apex predator of war gaming in that because I'm so big, I'm there. Therefore, I, I eat big problems. I do big games because I can't. And that's not to disparage this. There's lots of organizations that can run much smaller games. As a matter of fact, oftentimes we try to encourage people, look, if your game can be solved with a relatively small game, 10 person game kind of thing, single room, looking at it and open adjudication type thing, then we recommend you don't come to us. We can do it. But if I take on that project, it means I'm not doing a 400 player multi-cell game that's going to run over the course of a week. And I'm one of the few agencies that can do that. So we tend to, you know, we always have to kind of re reset ourselves when we're working with smaller groups or folks that um, will be going back to wargaming organizations that don't have that type of resources. Um, what are really the fundamentals and not to get roped into the, well, this is how the war college does it. Well, you're probably not us simply because we're big and blah, blah, blah. So, all right. That was my dip for today. Harold, kind of like back over to you. Hey everybody, we've produced for your enjoyment a three-part series of discussions on the August 2023 event by San Diego Historical Games Convention at the U.S. Naval War College Museum in Newport, Rhode Island. The event was three days of historical tours and gaming, including tours of the battleship USS Massachusetts, various sites that were part of the Battle of Rhode Island, tours of the museum at the Naval War College, and tours of the Navy War College itself. The tours were conducted by historians, game designers, professional wargamers to add color and background. Gaming at the museum was incredible as we played flanked by torpedoes, models, historical documents, and displays of items of historical significance to the U.S. Navy. The convention was attended by a host of designers, professional gamers, hobby gamers, and other interested parties. Of course, the museum is on base, but our evenings and lunches were spent in the picturesque and historical town of Newport, Rhode Island. We had such a great time, we're planning to return in 2024. This report is broken into three podcasts and includes discussions with Podcast 1, Peter Pellegrino from the U.S. Naval War College, Mark Herman, in Podcast 2, Museum Curator Rob Doan, Designer Mark Miklos, Designer Volko Runka, and YouTuber Mike Smart, a.k.a. Zilla Blitz. Pod 3 includes Designer Jeremy White, the San Diego HisCon team, International Gamer Roberto Satola, and Designer Sebastian Bay. This is the first of the three podcasts, including discussions with Peter Pellegrino, the U.S. Navy War College, as well as an interview with Mark Herman. We start with Peter, who's participating in one of our eight pre-convention meetings, where we discuss people and topics that will enhance our visit to the convention. By the way, we also run a Discord server prior to the convention that's exclusive to the attendees, where participants can get to know each other, schedule games, and trade ideas and plans. Here's Peter. Only 48 miles long and 37 miles wide, the smallest state in this land of ours is the state of Rhode Island. But although it is the smallest state, Rhode Island lays claim to a greater number of historic sites and other points of interest than can be found in some of the largest states in the Union. Naval War College campus, uh, where uh, you'll be this summer. And right over here, right over here, as I click, there you are. Right over there uh, is Founders Hall. And that's where the tour starts as well. Founders Hall uh, is the old... Uh, it's originally the Newport Widows and Orphans Asylum. Uh, and it was purchased by the Navy uh, and opened as a war college in 1884. Uh, Admiral Stephen B. Luce was the first president. But that, that's, so that's the museum now. 
That, that's where a lot of the events will occur uh, this summer. Uh, and the early gaming, we'll, we'll, again, if you're on the tour in the summer, we'll talk about kind of what kind of gaming was going on and how, how does the work college even come to gaming? What's its connection to Kriegspiel? Uh, there's a connection to Fort Adams down the bay uh, and Lawrence Livermore, or uh, William Livermore, rather, um, McCarty Little. Uh, the characters are important in the story. Um, and we'll talk a bit about that uh, on the tour. Uh, but then from there, we're going to proceed just across the street over to Loose Hall. Loose Hall is the first purpose-built uh, building on campus because we rapidly outgrow uh, the Founders Hall. Uh, so this is built just prior to the uh, Spanish-American War. Uh, and it, it was the whole kit and caboodle in terms of uh, Loose Hall had gaming spaces, classroom spaces, office spaces, dormitory facilities. It kind of was the entire college. Uh, and it's in that, the, in, in Loose Hall, and the two gaming floors that were in Loose Hall is where much of when people talk about the interwar period and they get all misty-eyed about War Plan Orange. And uh, this is where it was occurring. It was happening uh, over in Loose Hall. So from Loose Hall, we're going to stomp around the corner over to Pringle Hall. Uh, Pringle Hall looks structurally very much so the same as, as Loose Hall. But when Pringle Hall is opened in 1933, it is the most sophisticated wargaming facility at its, of its time. Uh, it's this huge floor, uh, and uh, we should be able to get in. The, 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 the floor isn't there anymore uh, in terms of the checkerboard floor. We think it's under the carpet, which is under the linoleum, which is under a bunch of other stuff, because this space has been uh, renovated, but you can still see the bones of the wargaming facility that was in Pringle. And so we're in Pringle uh, through the 1930s uh, and 40s and then into World War II. Um, and so that's when our tour then will take us out to the backside of the campus where Sims Hall is. Sims Hall, it's an old barracks that the uh, college acquires in 47 after the war. And it's gonna be, it's gonna have this, this uh, interesting history and how the college uses it uh, over the next uh, 60 years. Uh, and it is in Loose Hall, or I'm sorry, in uh, Sims Hall. Sims Hall's first is for overflow gaming, so to speak. Um, the gaming floor there is actually still accessible. Uh, and it looks an awful lot like kind of like Pringle uh, games until the 1950s, when along comes computer-based game. Okay, so this is the advent of news and the Navy Electronic Warfare uh, Simulation System, which is our, our big wargaming system. And that will reside over in Sims Hall through the Cold War. Uh, and then uh, eventually we're then from uh, we'll talk about the, again the history of computer gaming and how that changes both the student experience at the college as well as gaming's role in the fleet. Uh, and then from Sims Hall, we'll stomp on over to McCarty Little Hall. Uh, McCarty Little Hall is the newest facility uh, on campus. Uh, it is the uh, largest purpose-built wargaming facility for DOD uh, at 110,000 square feet. Uh, we joke that you know the Marines are building a uh, wargaming facility down in Quantico. Uh, and it's at 100 square, 100,000 square feet. So it's like, hey, 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 we're still bigger. <laughs> so I come, so uh, I'm a Penn Stater. So between Penn State and Michigan, okay, we we fight about who's got the biggest stadium, all right? And it, you know, in terms of seating, all right? And because it, it changes as each of us modifies our stadiums and the stadiums have grown, the big house versus Beaver Stadium. Currently, they're a little bigger. So we're sensitive to that. Um, so again, Mary Carty Little Hall is 110,000 square feet, um, and uh, she is opened in 2000, home for the Center of Naval Warfare Studies, and that's where all our gaming, uh, that and Sims Hall, back uh, building four that I talked about, uh, Sims Hall, we dumped in about uh, $12 million, and we've done a, a, a remodel, refit uh, for Sims Hall, uh, so that Sims is uh, primarily our gaming facility, or I should say it's our primary high, we call it the high security gaming facility. So games at the top secret level and up uh, are played over in Sims Hall uh, and our secret games and below can be played in McCarty Little Hall. So that's kind of the, the you know, what, what popped up on campus where uh, over the course. And you notice all of this is driven by wargaming uh, and having the capacity to game, to game bigger, um, to game more complex and to game for uh, higher and higher classification levels. Uh, so that's our lovely campus. And again, if you if you do the uh, tour in August, I'll give you all the all the skeletons and all the stuff and where the, all the bodies are buried over the course of the college. So that's that's part of it. College currently, um, it's a kind of a standard. You know, uh, except, you know, we take students in in August. Uh, they typically uh, graduate in June. We do have what's called a rolling sessions program, so it's not just a you know a spring class all the time. We do uh, do sessions. 
uh, in the fall and again in the winter type of thing. Uh, students that come to us in the fall then just are here for about uh, uh, that August through June period and kick them out the door back to the fleet. Um, if they come in the winter, then they have to summer over. Uh, and it's usually those students who then will get involved in advanced research projects and other activities during the course of the summer since uh, they got to have something to do because uh, we kind of go into a hiatus. Now, we say we. This is always kind of the joke. The teaching side goes into hiatus. The wargaming side, we're a 12-month-a-year organization. Uh, the wargaming department, uh, just as we're sitting in the largest building, we have the largest standing staff. Uh, so our total staff, to include uh, all my technicians uh, and my enlisted support, runs about 120 personnel. Uh, so of the core gamey people, if you think of it, um, the core faculty is about 36, uh, of which is pretty evenly divided. One third contractor, one third uh, civilian, government civilians, and one third active duty military. Uh, so because we're, we're, we've got the manpower, um, at any given time at the War College, uh, we, we, we are programmed to do eight major war games a year. At any given time, if you're kind of like you run your finger vertically through our, our event calendar, um, six games are ongoing. They're in some stage of either you know, pre-game work, uh, design, exec uh, rehearsals, execution, or they're in post-game analysis. So at any given time, six things are kind of on the table. We try to get eight within a calendar year. It's kind of what our, our mandate is. Um, and like a lot of things, the Navy wants more. Uh, and we've said, well, <laughs> there's a cost. So we're uh, currently uh, trying to expand our, uh, our faculty uh, numbers because that's probably right now one of our biggest limiters. Um, the building is a bit of a limiter, but because we expanded back into that old Sims Hall uh, and refurbed her, we do have a greater capacity again. But oftentimes, what it boils down to is the humans. Uh, our games are about a six to nine month cradle to grade. From the time someone says, hey, I got a problem, to the time I'm handing you a report, it's about nine months. Um, and the work college, we used to be masters of our own fate in terms of what we gained. Um, but now we're pretty much so driven around by uh, the CNO and, the, and his office at OpNav where the fleet now basically submits uh, prioritization, you know, war games, uh, problems they have that they think might be appropriate for war gaming. We go through a huge prioritization of rack and stack process with the Pentagon, uh, and eventually eight games are selected for us to do in a given year. Uh, so that's kind of our, that, that, that part of our today story. Uh, that war gaming part, uh, the, the gaming, unfortunately, is not as strong as it was in our past. Uh, and now, uh, game, we're kind of coming, we're coming back to it. Uh, there was a period of time through the 1980s, uh, where gaming for students, it's not that it fell out of favor, but again, if you're at any uh, institution where they keep adding requirements to your curriculum, but they don't want to take anything off, right? It's the, yeah, there's only so many classroom days, so many classroom hours, uh, that can be executed. So, as they've added requirements, one of the things that kind of fell to the wayside for a variety of reasons, and we'll talk about that if, if you're up on campus uh, during the tour, uh, was the student-centered war game. The Center for Naval Warfare Studies, despite the fact that I'm there at the Naval War College, actually does very little student gaming. We game for the fleet. We game for the Pentagon. We game for fleet commanders. Uh, obviously, uh, U.S. Pacific Fleet is a huge consumer of our time. Uh, so that's kind of how it's been focused. But during the day, uh, a little preview about the Warplane Orange uh, side of the house. And there's, if you Google me and Warplane Orange, you'll find either on Goose, the Georgetown University's website, uh, they're going to talk I gave on Warplane Orange and the War College. There's one on Evicta, the history site uh, as well, that you can hear me rattle on for 45 minutes about Warplane Orange. But the important part that I, I want to underscore for Warplane Orange is the idea that the college did not, if you keep saying, War, the War, Naval War College and Warplane Orange, and you know, Nimitz's quote about how, uh, through uh, war gaming, the war uh, the, uh, the war of Japan was gained by so many people uh, in so many different ways that nothing was a surprise. Um, yeah, kinda. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, uh, Nimitz's speech recorded. He uh, spoke to the students in 1960, 1961, uh, and he wrote a letter to the president of War Cabinet in 1965. That kind of has that sentiment, um, but it's been taken out of context from my viewpoint. Uh, and what I think Nimitz was trying to explain in terms of, of his wargaming experience. Now, think about this. So Nimitz is the class of 1923. All right. So think about the Navy in 1923. Red knots, biplanes, submarines are finally coming up about as equal a number of times as they go down. So it's, it's not the Navy he's going to fight with 20 years later in 1943. Yet, 
when asked about his wargaming experience, he says it was one of the most invaluable parts of my military training was my wargaming experience at the college. Yet the Navy he played with, little lead ships on the floor of, he would have been in Loose Hall, little lead ships on the floor of Loose Hall is not representative of the Navy he fought with in the Pacific. So it clearly wasn't about memorizing answers with dreadnoughts. And the rules he would know from hindsight, we know from hindsight, that some of the rules that we used in the 1920s and 30s when he was a student were wrong. Our rules got the Japanese long lance torpedo wrong. We got night fighting wrong. We got radar implementation wrong. We got the Japanese uh, naval aviation wrong. We assume they just mirror image us. Um, and they had a very different approach. Okay. We got submarine employment wrong. We got the vague outlines of amphibious warfare about right. But a lot of things, not so much. Yet, Nimitz doesn't say, ah, my wargaming was, was, was irrelevant because it was old. And in hindsight, it had a lot of things wrong about the Japanese. By the way, nobody jumps up and down about Warplan Black. Warplan Black? Yeah, exactly. Well, Warplan Black. Yeah. Warplan Black would have been the uh, Warplan for Germany. Okay. In no. Color, right. In the color coding system, orange was for Japan, black's for Germany, red was the UK, uh, other colors for other countries. Um, and the Warplan Black had us fighting the uh, Germans in the Caribbean. Right. Uh, it had nothing that looked like Battle of the Atlantic. It had no real considerations in terms of the submarine warfare that ends up being the dominant uh, feature of uh, the Atlantic. Uh, so no one runs around going, "Woo, we got you know, Warplan Black. But because we happen to get Warplan Orange, broadly speaking, quote unquote, right uh, in hindsight, um, that's what everybody beats on about. But in truth, Nimitz didn't see the value of wargaming for the explicit representation of the enemy. It gave him a mental toolkit. It built for Nimitz and his staff. And as a matter of fact, all flag officers but one had been a graduate of the War College at the outbreak of the war. Had a common understanding of things that didn't change. Geography, the challenge of logistics, the tyranny of distance. These were all things that they would have had to wrestle with in the games and whether they were playing with dreadnoughts or, or uh, the Missouri class battleship, it didn't matter whether they had Langley or eventually got to you know, Yorktown and Enterprise in terms of air power, it didn't matter. It was that, that planner's rhythm of trying to understand what were the relevant pieces parts that I had to consider when looking at the threat before me. So while there are things that we know that the games didn't cover, uh, over the course of the interwar period. We played about 318 games in the course of that, that time period. And there's some things that popped up that didn't get covered in games. There are things we gained that didn't, didn't manifest in the war. We gained a lot about the Panama Canal, okay? Uh, and was no real threat to the Panama Canal, and, but we gained that, all right? Because it was all about giving the students an opportunity to use a technique, wargaming, to gain that appreciation for how to think, not memorize the right answer. And that's the power of gaming, and it continues to be. We emphasize the fact that uh, there's the, kind of this hue and cry right now that we need more models and simulations in wargaming. We need more accurate, realistic, validated uh, data on the enemy to be able to wargame. It's like, no, we don't. Because if you're hinging everything on getting the model exactly right, and we know all models are wrong, some are useful, George Bach, then we're setting ourselves up for failure, as opposed to building a cadre of officers who are going to have to fight with whatever Navy they've got. It's the old, uh, you, you, you go to war with the Navy you have, not the Navy you want. So if I'm going to build a cadre of officers who can work with whatever we end up acquiring, and I get the Navy's, the, the Navy's uh, hand-wringing, especially when we do stuff for the Chief of Naval Operations, because remember that when we buy stuff for a Navy, we buy it with the intent of holding on it for 30 to 50 years. And we spend billions of dollars to acquire it, right? Typically aircraft carriers, right? So you really want to have this hope that you got it right. And how do I know I got it right? Well, let's do some more game. It's like, okay, I, I understand the desire to have a tool to help inform decisions about fleet acquisition and future force design. But by and large, I, I keep looking to the student side of things. Uh, and quite frankly, the, the admirals that we work with now, Probability, just statistically, given how old they are and how senior they are, 
that when the next war breaks out, most of them will be retired, rocking chairs, applesauce at home. They're not going to be the ones fighting the fight. It's my 04s and 05s today who are students who are going to have to fight the fight with the kit they got. And it's them that should be getting the maximum opportunity to work. So that's me on my soapbox. I get worked up about <laughs> about wargaming and who should be doing it and its value. All right. So with that, we have the opportunity to play a game. Um, now, uh, the games that were got that played uh, during the interwar period, uh, up until World War One, the game to play, the battle to understand was Trafalgar. Trafalgar was this touchstone in the age of sail uh, in terms of understanding uh, tactical advantage and being innovative uh, and what you could do at the time. And so everyone studied the hell out of Trafalgar. We did that until Jutland. Jutland is that transition battle where we go from age of sale and every gamer had to go through a, a Trafalgar kind of uh, understanding and, and playing out Trafalgar type events um, that as we come out of World War One, we've got Jutland to look at, right? Uh, and Jutland becomes the battle to understand uh, during the interwar period. Uh, and our rules for our gameplay changes uh, in this period. Uh, and fact, uh, this September, 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 I'll be down uh, at the Naval Academy, uh, the McMillan Center doing the, for their history symposium. Um, and I'll be part of a panel. We're going to be talking about how uh, my part of the talk is how wargaming rules changed over time and why and what impact that kind of had on, on tactical and strategic thinking. Um, our early rules that we played with at the college up to, again, prior to about 1921, 1922, uh, emphasized playability over, quote, accuracy. Right? But the only thing that they were hypersensitive to was maneuver. So here's kind of to, to, to give you an idea of it. In the old rule sets, and this would have been the same time that that Fred Jane is is game, you know, coming up with his, with his game, uh, Fletcher Pratt, uh, that a dreadnought was a dreadnought was a dreadnought. It did not matter whether it was a French dreadnought, a German dreadnought, a U.S. dreadnought. Didn't matter. We had but one class of ship. It was called a dreadnought. Same thing with destroyers, cruisers, etc. So there was no distinguishing for uh, individual characteristics. There was no consideration of the fact that, well, this ship has got uh, thicker deck armor than this ship, didn't care. Dreadnought's a dreadnought, a dreadnought. The angle that you're shooting at, okay, whether you're shooting a, you're shooting at a target broadside, you're shooting at a bow, don't care. Again, didn't matter. We're not gonna get into aspect, eh, don't, don't care, right? We will consider how many guns you can bring to bear. Broadside, you can bring more guns than you can, balanced or. Uh, and then what hits you get? deterministic. If you're at 10,000 yards and I'm shooting at you with an eight inch gun, you get X number of hits. We don't roll dice. We don't do probability. We don't spread shots around. We don't do salvo modeling. That's the rule. Because at the time, the thing that mattered the most was learning how to maneuver your ships to put the most number of barrels pointing downrange at the target. So maneuver, that was measured to a nat's ass. For maneuver, we had these big templates, kind of look like protractors with different speeds and every knot's marked off on how many degrees deflection the ship will drop. We have a different template for uh, destroyers than we do for battleships, et cetera. So it's all about maneuver. But then when we, to, we get to gunnery, eh, measure the range. Um, and all the gunnery was based on what's called the 14-hit the 14 14 hit, hit rule, which basically said, you look at the ship, the largest caliber gun afloat for the time. Uh, and for a while, it was 14 inch guns. And they then tried to come up with an estimate that if you put a target ship uh, uh, 5,000 yards away from a ship with 14 inch guns and you just hammered the hell out of the target, how long before the target sank? Right? How many hits to sink the target? All right. That's now the baseline. And everything else now is a percentage of a 14 inch shell hit. So maybe an eight inch shell does half the damage of a 14 inch, so it's 0.5 hits. Everybody worked up a clever formula, and this is sort of like what was proprietary about, say, Fletcher Pratt's system versus Fred's system versus the college, on how many points a ship should be worth. Ah, so a, a, a dreadnought should be worth 20 points, but a cruiser should only be worth 17 points. And all ships die linear, right? So when you've got half your health gone, you're half your speed, half your propulsion, all right? It's not the way ships die, but it was all about keeping it playable. World War I comes along. 
and we look at the rules, we look at Jutland and we say, if we were to play Jutland with our current rules, would we get a Jutland result? The answer is no. So they go, hmm, we've got to include more stuff in our rules. We've got to make our rules more detail-oriented. So suddenly, I go from a game where every, usually on, the, on most of our gaming at the time period, uh, it was three-minute moves. Everything's three minutes on the floor. Uh, we start to make the rules more complex. Gunnery rules get much more complex. Uh, now we're worried about spray, light, uh, salvo, range, plunging fire versus flat trajectory, uh, target aspect, pitch and roll of the shooting ship. Uh, well, what else we get into? Um, there's about eight pages of calculations you've got to go through in the old rule book once we, we come up with what's called the fire's effect system to be able to work out whether you get a gunnery hit. Now, the whole joke was, yeah, and aircraft, yeah, it was one paragraph. Throw some dice, that's fine. <laughs> right? Submarines, yeah, same thing. Throw some dice, that's fine. But gunnery was in super detail. And it now takes about a half hour of real time for the umpires to work up an answer every time the students move the pucks around, move the ships around. For three minutes worth of battle on the floor, it takes almost a half hour to work through all the tables and charts and everything to come up with who got hit. There are people who have criticized that tempo of play in that it lulled naval officers into thinking that naval warfare would be this bit of this, this analytic activity where you could study the horizon, study the radar plot, study the problem, think about it, commit to a course of action, communicate that, we'd all be coordinated in doing our thing. Savo Island comes along. And this is where this criticism comes from. Salvo Island is the most violent 20 minutes in the surface Navy's history. It's a miserable defeat. And some people pointed back at the kind of wargaming we were doing because the rules were so complicated, the gaming pace was so slow that it gave officers a false sense of tempo. Critics to that on both sides. The Brits have also come up with a similar type of uh, analysis looking at how they were doing wargaming at the time. But if you go back to that, no one ever said uh, wargaming with miniatures on the floor was a simulator, right? I'm not splashing water on you. I'm not rocking your world as you get hit by shells. I'm not trying to simulate the combat environment on the bridge of a cruiser circa 1940. I'm trying to give you the ability to think about the problem ahead of time. So you've built those habits of mind that might help you to survive when you actually run into it for real. So gaming has always been that balance. Uh, and of course, then it comes along with the computers. And I'll talk about that on the tour, uh, about how computers change, changes, not necessarily for the better, our perspectives on how rules should work within wargaming. But uh, so with Trafalgar, we designed a easy online game, simplified, right? We're kind of more of a simplification perspective. Um, and we can play here a handful of rounds. Gameplay is pretty quick. So here's how, how, here's how it's going to work, though, since I know who's going to be here. Um, if you're interested right now in, in playing the Trafalgar game, active, you'll, you'll be put as the captain of a frigate uh, in the 1800s. What I want you to do is go to the chat and just stick in your name and last initial. And then I'm going to pull that off, build the roster. We'll take, we'll take a 10 minute break so people can recharge drinks and whatnot. Um, while I upload, while I load all your player information and set the battle space and then we'll jump in. So go ahead and just, and stick in names and last initials and i'll start writing these down and i'll let you know what side you're on and what your ship is so you think rhode island's a small dull state full of crowded cities and smokestacks and maybe a few foggy inlets for clamming to make that famous clam chowder well, think again. Rhode Island has more to offer than any other vacation area of comparable size in this country. It's a swinging state, the state that's always on the go. A sport rapidly growing in popularity at South County beaches is surfing. Breakers range from two to eight feet, adequate for the serious surfer and safe enough for anyone who wants to try surfing for the first time. Waxing is important. So Next is a discussion I have with Mark Herman about his experience 
at the U.S. Navy War College, as well as his experience at the convention, and what it's like to see some of your game materials enshrined in the museum. now has approximately one inch of wax on his board. More and more sun seekers have been discovering for themselves the special charm of Rhode Island beaches, the relaxing, cool tempo of a Rhode Island summertime. A coming home party for me. Uh... I have literally spent across my entire life about 60 weeks at the uh, Naval War College and in Newport because of my professional career. And I was a I was on the uh, adjunct faculty, and I taught uh, one of the more famous courses, uh, strategy and policy. Um, some you know, and I am the least uh, known of the very very famous people who have taught that class actually, uh, but. Um, so anyway, so I've been to that museum. I've been to the War College. You know, I know that whole area very, very well. It was kind of fun. And by the way, if you've never been to Newport, it's a fantastic place, especially in the summer. Now, I will say that it's, you know, it's not inexpensive. You know, this is this is Newport, Rhode Island, where all the rich people used to hang out every summer back in the day. So it's got a rich tradition of, you know, of a, of a summer vacation spot. I mean, it's fantastic. But, um, but the point being is that I've been to that, you know, location like i said in fact i hope right off the base if you were driving and i think i pointed out there's a, a booz allen hamilton office that i opened up for booz allen 20 years ago and it's still there so uh and that's the, and the reason it's there is because one it's very close to the war college where we had all of our work and two it's like the only office building in those days that actually had office space so you know newport's not known as a commercial capital of the world uh so it, like i said that was like the only place we could get space and, you know, during the summers when I was, you know, working there uh, during the summers for this uh, Office of Secretary of Defense summer study, I used to swim at the pool every, every uh, you know, lunch hour with the uh, SEAL Team 6 guys who are like, they look like, you know, mountains of muscle and they, can sw they swim back and forth like, you know, like torpedoes. And it's just kind of cool place. Anyway, so going to the convention, of course, the convention's held at that beautiful, uh, it's a very intimate but very well uh, apportioned um, naval museum. I mean, it's got some great, great stuff in it. I mean, I mean, it got, you know, we were playing uh, Empire of the Sun and, and we were next to like a torpedo, but it wasn't like a mock-up of a torpedo. It was a torpedo. Obviously, they took all, take all the, uh, <laughs> the the flammable and explosive stuff out of it. But, you know, it's it's really got the right ambiance to, you know, the things. And um, and it was a great group. I mean, I got to hang out with Frank Davis and uh, Jeremy White, uh, Sebastian Bay owes me. I, I was looking for Sebastian was there, but I, he said hello to me once and he was like gone. I, I never could find him again. But I wanted to play his littoral uh, commander, is it called? Commander, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I, but he he he's he's promised to teach me. He's you know he's broken his promise, and I'm going to hold it to him next year. But um, and I got to play. Uh, I basically spent Saturday playing four games of playing Orange, a game simultaneously with a game of Empire of the Sun on my gigantic. You know, you saw that four by six map with awesome. all the big pieces. Yeah. And then I played uh, Jeremy White's new Pacific Chase, I guess he's calling it now. Maybe they'll have a different title later. Uh, I want to say as the Americans, I, I, I reproduced the American Victory at Midway, uh, which was amusing. And then I learned how to play Fran Chadwick's, you know, upcoming since 1985, uh, Divine Wind. <laughs> so I, I do hope he, you know, I, I love Frank and I've worked and I've done numerous games with him, but you know, I was like, you know, it was like a tortoise and a hare situation as far as, uh, <laughs> you know, how how things happened, which was an, which was probably an interesting mix of, uh, you know, perspectives. But he's a great guy. And it's good to see him again after all these years. And we got and, it, and he's got a very cool looking game. I can't wait to play it uh, uh, again. He actually played. I mean, he told me how to play it and I did. I played a turn of it. But uh, and Jeremy White's game is you know totally solid. I'm, I can't wait for that to come out. So I, I feel like there's been a lot of, uh, you know, really cool. And so playing Pacific War games in um, in the Naval War College with all of its World War II memorabilia. And and by the way, 
you know, I've been to the Smithsonian many times and the ship models that are in that Naval War College Museum are basically better at the best, those are the best war, you know, war, you know, for, you know, scale models of, you know, the HMS Victory was there. I think the Constitution was in there somewhere. Oh, no, it was the Constellation. They have a big, what is the Constellation? They have a big exhibit to the Constellation, which, of course, is in Baltimore, which I've, I've actually uh, rented it out and had dinners on it uh, back in the day. Uh, <laughs> you know, you could do that. And, uh, and it, you know, it, it, just, it was just, and it's a good crowd. And, and by the way, in Newport, you know, the, the amount of good places to eat is, you know, crazy. I mean, I mean, there was just no shortage of yeah. go over to Broadway there. And, you know, there's just one restaurant after another, you know, good beer, good food. At, nice at the risk of, at the risk of overstating it, it was a quaint seaside community. It was really yeah, great. And, Very and, cool. And by the way, for all those people, you know, it's terrible how I, like every day I saw while we were there, you know, the temperatures down in the southern part of the country were like, you know, multiple days of 100 degrees. I was sleeping in my room with my window open and the air conditioner off. Yeah. It was so nice. You know, it, this is uh, Newport's weather. There's a reason why all the rich people in New York used to go to Newport. Yeah. You know, the Astors and the uh, the Vander, I guess, they, I, I know the Astors for sure used to go up there. I And many, many others. But the Astors is the one that does a house. But if anybody comes with their, uh, you know, their family... And they're looking for something to do. There's something called the uh, cliff walk. And I don't mean that like you're walking on a cliff, but you're walking along this high bluff. And it's one, you know, famous rich person's house after another day you can tour. And, you know, uh, my wife's done that before. It's it's really fabulous. Uh, so, you know, if you ever get a chance, uh, they got the, people looking for something to do. That's amazing. And uh, like I said, the town in general is just a, a, a quaint, very nice place. Um Oh, and by the way, there's a uh, semi-professional ball club there, and I was going to go to the game, but I wanted to play games that night on Saturday. But there was an actual ball game you can go to right uh, right near in downtown, which is I used to go to that field all the time when I used to be there. You know, you know, it's just it's just a wonderful place. And like I said, the venue, uh, the people of the work uh, war museum, the, the museum I don't know which were naval war museum, um, war college museum. They were uh, really, really accommodating. Uh, Doan and his crowd, very, very nice. And, uh, you know, the facility is great. And, uh, you know, you're just playing amongst all those uh, exhibits. It was just fun. Speaking you know, of... I like also, what I also liked about it for me is I, I like small, you know, I saw pictures of Gen Con where it looked like something out of, like, you know, Soylent Green. Uh, you know, people are crammed in here, shoulder to shoulder, bumping into each other. It is nothing like that. This is like very nice, lots of room to play games, big table, plenty of tables. Very, very, you know, calm, have a good time. You can actually concentrate on playing games. Yeah. And there's no vendor. I mean, you had a couple of games upstairs, but, you know, that was just, uh, you know, there's yeah, no vendor. Yeah. It's gaming and good time. Great time. So speaking of exhibits, there was a there was a map of yours. Uh, oh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, Volko was talking about it, and he said, uh, you know, that that one of his fellow designers was in a case, and I at no point were you inside the case, just your map. I, I not yet. I there, yeah. there may be a point where that may be true. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll be buried like Alexander in a, in a see-through uh, box, but uh, I don't think so. that. that's yeah. not the plan. But um, no, what happened was, uh, where does this go back to? So, in nineteen eighty-two. I went back to, no, no, excuse me, 1981. So this is the spring of 81. And I was working as a consultant down in Washington, D.C. And Brad Hessel, who was the head of R&D of SPI, Simulations Publications Incorporated, was in town. He wanted to have lunch. And uh, he offered me a job to come back to SPI to run this. They had gotten a contract with the Pentagon to do a manual world war three game and basically they had no clue what they were doing i mean it's just they had nobody who understood it and you know it was they had spent most of the money and they didn't have any product and they didn't, you know they didn't have to deal with the government so and carol uh, my wife uh she uh you know never wanted to leave new york so when i walked said to her there was a, a chance for us to go back to spi uh at the you know and it was a lateral move like the same salary she was pretty much packing her bags before i finished the conversation so we came back and um i produced this thing called the strategic analysis simulation which was a world war three game and i 
used a very unusual, you know, World War, everybody kept, if you look at a Mercator map, by the way, the worst map you could ever look at for anything is a Mercator map, other than trying to get the names of countries. It's the, It tells you nothing about the world distance or anything. And I was, in fact, I'm just finishing my uh, my Cleo's Corner for Roger on, and I'm focused on Midway, and I talk a lot about, you know, when you're doing a, um, when you're doing a game where the theater of operations is, is one third of the world, um, you know, latitude uh, distortion in a Mercator map really matters. And so going that path is just foolhardy, which most people have done, by the way. Um, and so when you think about World War III, and it, you've flown from somewhere in the United States to Asia in your life, haven't you? Sure. And, and where, where do they go over? They go over like the North Pole. Well, you know, it's not the North Pole. They go over the top of the of the planet. Right, right. They cut. Yeah. Why is that? They touch Alaska. As between, yeah. So the Soviet Union and the United States are very close to each other. It's just that there's this big ice cap, or it used to be an ice cap between us. But if there was ever a war, the war was happening. You know, North Pole down. That's the war. You know, the the horrible exchanges that would have wiped out civilization would have been over that uh, that ice cap. Uh, which obviously wouldn't have been an ice cap along with all those nuclear explosions. But regardless, and so I did a, uh, a so if you think about the world as like, a, you know, it's, it's a it's a sphere, you flat earthers, you're idiots, uh, but it's a sphere. And if you were to peel it up so that the top of the orange is like the center of the map, it kind of lays up into a very weird shape. And that's, if so if you look at, you know, your website, you'll see that was the projection I used. It was very, and it was both, it changed people's minds in the Pentagon to see the world that way because it was an annual game, but I, they're not looking at the left-right map. They're looking at a top-down map. And all of a sudden, it, you use the right map projection. You, you immediately start having strategy discussions with yourself that are just different because it's the way the world really is. Um, you know, I was pointing out that, um, you know, if you look at almost every Pacific game, I was just looking at USN and, you know, all of them. The distance from Tokyo to Dutch Harbor, distance from uh, Tokyo to Oahu, in almost every map I can find, I have a lot of Pacific games, they're all the same distance approximately. You know, if it's an area map, it's, you know, it's the same number of moves, whether you go there, you go there. In reality, um, Oahu is 3,850 miles from Tokyo, and, it, and Dutch Harbor is 2,844 miles from So there's a 1,000-mile difference, and that matters in a, in a war where aircraft ranges matter. And a lot of strategy makes sense because you get the right, you know, and I did that while I was with Pacific War and Empire of the Sun. But my point is I did this map for World War III and the strategic analysis simulation with this top-down polar view. And all of a sudden, the whole, you know, strategic uh, nuclear war has a whole different look to it, you know, in your mind, you know, when you get to see it differently. Anyway, one of the big surprises of my life uh, was I go into this thing and I look at this case, I go, that map looks familiar. And then I see my name in there. I, I didn't know it was there. It was just, it was, I, I don't even know how it got there, but it was. So, <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. And and so once they told me it was there, I, I actually brought them the rules to the game. I had I had a copy of you know, the original rules, the, the draft copy actually, and I gave it to the museum as a donation. And and I and I might someday find the uh the counter there actually were blank counters you would write them in but they have if you have the rule most of it was basically you know you do it we we're using stickies on acetate on that map so if you have the rules and you have the map you're you're ready to go uh back in the day of uh, 19 you know 1980 early 80s uh period of time it's tell you a funny story about the game i was one time uh, i was in the pentagon and the game was used as the game to play out the National Defense University uh, final uh, project. And we ran, and and what happened was I was at SPI, and that's when the, and we just finished the game, we had already gone to the Pentagon and they had accepted the game, and now the National Defense University wants to use it, we had a contract to go, you know, run this game for them. And SPI gets taken over by TSR, uh, you know, the dragon has entered town. So we all quit and started Victory Games. But uh, the contract was with SPI. So I get a, I go, I take the boy, I talk to this colonel, army colonel. Uh, he was a red leg, so he was an artilleryman. 
And he was the guy in charge of this project. And I take all the uh, Victory Games staff with me. You know, this is, you know, John Butterfield, Eric Lee Smith, you know, Bob Ryer, myself. And I think that was, oh, and, and uh, Jerry, Jerry, Chris Klug, I forget how he, which name he uses these days, but uh, Klug. And the, and the five of us go down to Washington and I'm sitting in the, in the colonel's office and and I explained, to, I, I explained to him that SPI doesn't exist, there is no contract, but that I personally would honor, we'll run the game for free, I told him, as long as they would just pay for the hotel bill and some food. And he, I, I'd never seen a, a grown man cry before. <laughs> anyway, we with the crew, we devised and we ran a 26 simultaneous World War Threes across the War College. And they were saying to me, this is the part of the story that's kind of funny, is they said to me, you know, how are we going to keep, remember, this is back in 1982, you know, so computers are like the size of Volkswagens and there's no cell phones and, you know, and they said to me, he goes, well, how are we going to communicate between the different buildings and floors and rooms? I said, well, I said to me, he's in the army, I go, don't you guys in the army have these like field phones or things? He goes, oh, wow, we get every summer, we get this National Guard communication unit, so they strung everywhere these wires, I literally was sitting there doing the game, like, you know, you, you go, you, there's like a little thing you wind up to shoot it up and then you go and push the talk. And I, and we had different numbers, you know, it was like a switchboard, you know, I, I, I dial up and go, you know, talk to, talk to the, you know, a building over and say, how's it going? And they go, everything's good, but we have a, so I was sitting at like command central with the uh, Colonel and we were getting uh, rules questions. Like, you know, what do I do when, you know, the Libyans, you know, do this versus the carrier group and all this kind of, and so it really worked out well and it was very memorable, but I had a great time. Uh, it was just a great time. Um, and like I said, you know, I've always been a man of my word. So they got their game and uh, TSR got to keep the money, I guess. I mean, I don't know what they did. I, I guess they couldn't charge the government legally, but maybe they did and got sued. Who the hell knows? Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's my story about the, the, that game. Yeah, well, it, it's probably at the cost of one toilet seat. So they, who's, who's... oh, you know, the the famous uh, yeah. no, it wasn't a toilet seat. It was a it was a, it was a tool, a hammer or that something. would work. Like as the plane was in flames and coming down, it would still make coffee. I think was the was the was the <laughs> stupidity of that one. Right. Um, it's it's kind of interesting to think about the path that game must have taken. Right, the map. So you delivered it in D.C. Right. Yeah, so what happened was um, this army guy, and my boy, I don't know who the army colonel was. It could have been the same colonel who ran the game, but somebody who was at that game had a, you know, took, you know, we gave, you know, we weren't, we they, we gave away the copies. So we, you know, by the way, it looks like a playtest map. You know, it literally, the playtest map shot, you know, photographed and then reproduced and printed out by uh, Monarch Avalon. So it looks like a it's just a big playtest map, which is what we played on. Yeah, totally 100% right. And uh, so that somebody got to keep kept their copy and somewhere in their travels deposited it in the Naval War College. And, and so it would have gotten deposited sometime in like the you know early to mid 80s. And I get to see it in 2023. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Well, then I get to see it. I thought it was great. I've got a picture of it. We'll we'll post it for people. But... Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite amazing the, how, how all that comes, uh, comes back around and back together. And it's, you know, I wonder what else is in their archives, right? Like any good museum, they have archives and all sorts of interesting things and they rotate, uh, you know, they rotate what they show. So I wonder what else is there, uh, from your, from you or, or just commercial war game history. Oh, I, I suspect they've got, you know, the, the stuff that's really fat. You know, remember, this is um, we're playing orange. That's why I was playing playing. I felt it was really appropriate to play playing orange. Where right. they actually, you know, in the vicinity of where they played. It wasn't played at that building. Uh, I think they I think it's it might be called Simpson Hall is where they played it, which, which is not far from where, you know, it's, you know, 200 yards from where we were, we were playing, I think. But wherever it was, it was it was nearby. That room still exists. You know that place still exists. I ran into it once. One of those amongst those many years, I found I I, I had swam. You know with with the SEAL Team Six guys. I mean I wasn't swimming with them, but I was in the pool and they were in the pool. And um, and I was you know I hadn't had and we used to court. They the guys in the military taught me the Frank. It's called a warrior's lunch. You go to a vending machine. 
that's <laughs> what they call a warrior you know it's a it's a coconut you know it's a cheesy cracker thing or you know whatever that's a warrior's lunch as i was taught yeah. by the followed the, by a mountain dew yeah yeah so i i go in there and they t i said where's the vending machine area because i used to i actually went there many times and as i'm sitting there i'm going this this room looks so familiar and i see this gallery there's a got a gallery on top and i was like and there's a staircase i go up and i'm looking down i go I think this is where they played those. It was like a vending machine with some, you know, they're using the I think they fixed it up since then. They now it's been refurbished. But when I was there back in the, you know, 90s and early, yeah, and back in the 90s, you know, it was it was just a, an old dingy room with vending machines and uh, you know, storing tables and chairs and that kind of crap. But uh, it was kind of cool. So I I used to get my uh, my warrior's lunch in you know the room of the Plan Orange uh, war gaming room. <laughs> Uh, back in the day, it was kind of cool. Right, right. Yeah, we went on a walking tour. Of course, you didn't need it, but uh, yeah. Pete okay. Pellegrino took us on a walking tour of of a lot of those uh, those rooms, and and very cool to, to to see and touch the history, even though some of them are used in different formats now. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, space is at a premium, and you know, uh, but they have tons of pictures, and I, I suspect they've got tons of you know, they were using a uh, a version James, the famous uh, you know naval you know, books, you know, the James Naval, whatever they are, but they used to publish. And there's still a whole, James is still a big company, still producing that stuff. But back in the day, it was, I think it started as Naval stuff only, then they branched out from there uh, over the, you know, over the decades, you know, over the century. Uh, but what was cool about, uh, they there was a set of Naval rules that they had published. And I think they were using some variant of that back in the day to do these plain orange things. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Was your experience, just to close on something that ties all this together, was your experience that hobby wargaming and professional wargaming are more similar than they are different? No. Having, you know, the problem I have is I actually have done it. Yeah. And so I don't have that illusion at all. Well, I, uh, the rest of us have illusions because we know nothing about professional wargaming. Well, I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just yeah. saying that I... Yeah, you know, games are done for different purposes, right? So, you know, when I'm sitting down and playing Empire of the Sun or I'm playing with Jeremy White in, you know, uh, Pacific Chase, that's everybody. Everybody needs to get a copy of that bad boy. I haven't like really loved Atlantic Chase, so I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, but that aside, um, you know, it's a um, it's experiential history, right? You know, you're you're getting to experience. You know, when you read a book, it, books are great. You know, there's some amazing books and some, you know, less amazing books. But, you know, I've been reading, you know, I read lots of great books and, you know, they have analysis, but they're a static narrative. Like, you know, you're, you're taking it in. You can think about what you're reading, but it's, you know, it's just what it says. Uh, when you play a war game, you get that information. If, it, if it's a, well, it's a historical war game the way I've defined it, you know, where it's more towards the, you know, the history is included, but you get to understand the dynamics of the situation. You get to experience to a little degree, the dynamics of a historical situation, which teaches you things that you really can't get out of a book because you don't experience it. You're just reading it. So it's more the dynamic nature of it. When you're doing, um, you know, kind of like professional war games, uh, you know, they the purpose is, uh, it could be a training purpose. And in that case, I will say this, the training the training side of war, you know, the professional training games are closer to what we do because, you know, you don't want to bore the, bore the heck out of people. And so we had, they, they've been successful using training, but very rarely are they used in analysis because, you know, there, there are this, you know, it, there's an old joke, you know, about the Pentagon, it's about the budget stupid and roles and missions. And, you know, so, your ability to portray that to this everybody's satisfaction is just not going to happen in a commercial product. It's just, it's got, you know, it's, it's both political, financial, um, tradition, you know, perspective. I mean, it's just, there's a lot going on there. Um, when you do a Pentagon war plan game or, you know, any kind of game about technology or whatever the heck it might be. Uh, so I so I will agree with you that in a training sense the games are, have some similarity, but after that, um, not so much. 
you know, education and training and our war games are not dissimilar, but the rest of this stuff, why, I mean, like one time I ran this World War III game in the Pentagon and I had some very senior people in the room and we had just done like the initial, you know, the, the, the hour of the destruction of the planet phase, right? You know, they fire by fires and missiles and the bombers and the submarines and all this kind of stuff. And, we're, and I'm sitting and it's lunchtime comes, you know, as you should have in the middle of a nuclear war, you have to have lunch. So I'm sitting at the table and I'm doing, and remember there's no computer. So it's, it's algorithms and I have a pencil and I literally take a large, like, you know, like those manila mail envelopes and I'm running the numbers, you know, I'm writing the numbers down for what happened and I'm coming up with, you know, the casualty figures for the United States population. And the deputy director of FEMA comes, sits next to me, goes, so you're basically running this war off the back of an envelope. I said, yeah, that would be true. <laughs> and so he says, well, how many casualties did the U.S. take? I said, it looks to be about 100. Remember, the population of the U.S. at this time is about 250 million, give or take. In this period and i'm calling the casualties at 100 million people are you know gone you know this is how bad this is right and, and we were we were looking at something called enduring deterrence which was a reagan era policy that said you could win a nuclear war so the head of fema who was you know appointed by um, reagan uh or his administration is going to be well we've done this calculation we only come up with 80 million so we're discussing you know and i also go on to the fact that you know, once there's no hospitals and food and transportation and medicine, you know, another, you know, 60, 70 million people are going to die either from their wounds or just from, you know, just, you know, terror. And after about a, a 30 minute conversation, I mean, this is not, this is a very serious conversation about the end of the world. And he looks at me, he goes, and he's making his argument. He says, let me ask a question. What's the difference between 100 million and 80 million in this context? He goes, mm, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and thankfully, after a few more war games, it's, I never heard the word enduring deterrence again in the Pentagon. <laughs> so I feel like I had a, I had a small, you know, input into, let's not do this. This is really stupid, but I never said that. You see, the key is you don't, you don't tell them they're stupid. You, you demonstrate that it's stupid. That's better. <laughs> Favorite of the cool crowd and the not-so-cool is the Newport Jazz Festival, highlight of the summer season. Covered avidly by international press representatives, the festival gains new brilliance each year. <laughs> Top musical performers like Dave Brubeck, Dizzy Gillespie, Frank Sinatra, come back yearly to give Rhode Island that special, swinging but sweet touch that caps out its summer madness, that glad madness of Rhode Island on the go. Well, that's it for podcast number one. We have two more podcasts to follow, covering a series of discussions with people that attended the SD HisCon event in August at the U.S. Navy War College Museum. Well now, think you've seen something? Not really. This has been just a small taste of Rhode Island on the go. Next summer, why not come where the fun crowd is? To the cool, swinging, pleasure-minded state that's always on the go. Rhode Island. Let's see. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're muted as well. Okay. Now can you hear me? Yes. All right. Excellent. Where is everybody? <laughs> They're all in the main room. So uh, um, how did I get here? Well, I, I, uh, it's a good question. You should have a blue button that says leave the room. The, all right. Hit that one. All right, yeah. Hit that one and, and we'll meet in the, in the other room until we get going. What's that, Leslie? Am I unmuted now? You are unmuted. What What can we do for you, sir?
Well, you can change my name. My, na my name is Frank. Leslie is my middle name. But in terms of wargaming, I've always been called Frank Davis. I think you have to change that in How about that? In your handle. Uh, no, it's already done. Yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, How my about God. That? You can do that. That's Boy, good. Harold has. Well, Harold you know, these skills. these skills are honed over time during COVID. We would have, I'd had hundreds of students that I would lecture to online, and uh, it wasn't necessarily changing from Leslie to Frank. It was changing from some curse word to, to something that was more uh, neutral. <laughs> so happy to do that, Frank. <laughs>